a group of Christians planted a Baptist church right here in this neighborhood. So it's been the custom of this local church for a long time, the first week of November, to mark the anniversary of Oakhurst Baptist Church. Back in 1936, a group of Christians met just down the road near where the elementary school is today to start a Baptist church. At that time, the closest Baptist church would have been uptown. We're about four miles from uptown. That would have been a long way to go in 1936 when people didn't have their own form of transportation or the really fast bikes that many of you ride today. And in God's will, he planted this church here in this neighborhood. And by his grace, that ministry has been sustained for a long period of time, 86 years of gospel ministry, 86 years of God's word being preached, 86 years of the gospel being proclaimed, of missionaries being supported, of Christians being equipped for the work of ministry. His, his grace has sustained this church through so many seasons, including a season many of us here experienced, probably thought we never would, of 22 Sundays of meeting on a backfield. God was gracious to sustain this assembly, this meeting of God's people, even in such a strange and unusual time. By God's, grace, his faith, his, by God's grace, His faithfulness has been on display in this local church for 86 years. Local churches, you can clap, sure, why not, clap. Yeah, we, we give God the praise and the credit and the glory for that. Local churches are His plan. It's His plan to display His faithfulness to His promise for all to see. Have you ever thought about local churches like that? Displays of God's glory and His faithfulness to His promise. That in Christ, God has redeemed for Himself a people. Through the blood of Christ, His sacrifice and dying and paying for sins on the cross, through His resurrection from the dead, given new life to people who by the Spirit of God have come to repent and believe in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins. He's formed the church as His body here on earth. Local churches scattered across the globe, all meeting this morning, proclaiming the same gospel of Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead for us and for our salvation. He's formed us to be a people for His praise and for His glory. And we trace our roots back not just 86 years. We trace our roots back to the book of Genesis. We see what God was doing in that very beginning, first book of the Bible, the very beginning of God forming His people. We look at the, the history of God's faithfulness to His people, and we look in Genesis 46 today, where we see God forming Jacob and his descendants to be his people, blessing them and promising them of the greatest gift they could possibly know, the presence of God. That history is our history. As we consider God's presence with Jacob and his descendants, the people of Israel, may we consider God's presence and the promise of his ongoing presence with his people today, the New Testament people of God the church, those who are in Christ. May we consider His promised presence to us to be with us always through His Son, Jesus. As we look at Genesis 46 today, I want us to see this main idea of the passage. Here's the main idea I want us to see today. God promises to always be present with His people. God promises to always 
be present with his people. If you haven't already done so, turn with me to Genesis chapter 46. If you take your copy of God's Word, or if you want to use that Bible right in front of you, there's a copy in front of the, in the pew rack right in front of you. If you take that and turn to page 39, you'll find Genesis chapter 46 on page 39 of the pew Bible. We want you to use that pew Bible this morning. If, if you don't own a Bible, don't want to have one back at home, we'd like to give this Bible to you as a gift from our church to you. We're going to be looking at all of chapter 46 this morning. A little bit of context to consider what we saw last week. In the last chapter came the big reveal. Joseph finally revealed himself to his brothers after a a series of tests. He had been hiding his identity, but he finally revealed himself, and most importantly, he revealed that he had forgiven them. He had forgiven them for the evil that they had done against him, selling him into slavery, having been separated from the family all those years, his offer of forgiveness was found in his understanding of God's providence. While his brothers had meant things for evil, God was at work the whole time working for good. God was at work sending Joseph to to Egypt to be the one that would deliver his family from famine, saving them from famine that was there in the land. Now, there were still five years of famine left. At this point in Genesis, they'd only been through two years of famine only, right? Two years, pretty long time of suffering. Five more years still to come as revealed to Joseph by God in a dream. So he wanted to get his brothers to bring the whole family back from the land of Canaan to live in Egypt. This would be the third journey to Egypt, and it would be a costly one, meaning all the family would leave their home. Leaving home's hard, but this wasn't just leaving home. It was leaving a land that was promised to them, to go to a land of pagan worship and idolatry. Yet they receive a promise that gives them courage and comfort. The promise they receive is that God will always be present with them, and that gave them faith for the journey. As we make our way through this whole chapter this morning, I want to split this up into three parts, and I want us to see three scenes of God's presence displayed in this chapter. First, in verses 1 through 4, we see God's promised presence. God's promised presence presence in verses 1 through 4. Now, we'll spend most of our time in point 1 because these first four verses contain God's promises that lay the foundation for the rest of the journey. Well, having heard of God's providence and all that the Lord had done to preserve Joseph's life, hearing that he was alive, seeing what God had done and what the news that the brothers brought back, Jacob had heard enough and he was ready to go to Egypt to see Joseph. So, the chapter begins with Joseph excuse me, Jacob rather, on the road with all that he had. Now, now Moses, the narrator of Genesis, he doesn't just skip forward. I mean, this is what we've been waiting for. It's Jacob and Joseph reunited. He thought his son was dead all these years, living in, in sorrow and mourning and sadness. This is what we've been waiting for, reading this story. And you could read this chapter. They are, right, hurry up. Let's get to the good part. We had this long list of names here that Doug did an excellent job reading through. But why are we tracking through all this? Let's just get to the good stuff and see them reunited. Well, there are some important details that Moses wants us to see first. And the important details we see in verses 1 through 4 are promises we need to understand. 
Now, first off, in verse 1, we see what Jacob does before the journey out of the land. So before he leaves the promised land of Canaan, he makes a pit stop. Right? He's not just stopping at the QT to refresh himself. He's stopping at Beersheba. Beersheba is a place of significance in the history of the people of Israel. If you remember the place of Beersheba from earlier chapters, uh, we see back in chapter 21, that place was given that name by Abraham. Abraham named that place Beersheba after he settled a dispute with Abimelech over a well. It was a memorial to God that Abraham gave there and set up of God giving peace to live in the land of Canaan to Abraham and his family. So it became the place that Abraham lived with his family. It also became a place that was special to Isaac. Back in Genesis chapter 26, God appeared to Isaac at Beersheba. So before leaving the land, Jacob made a pit stop at Beersheba, and he offered up sacrifices of thanksgiving to the God of his father Isaac. These were likely sacrifices of thanksgiving, likely him thanking God that Joseph was alive. Now, Beersheba was on the very edge, kind of the, the, the southernmost part of that promised land of Canaan. So before he would head out and go to Egypt, this was the last stop. And the significance here is that before he left the land and went on the journey, he sought the Lord. He didn't go on before seeking the Lord. And in verse 3, we see there at Beersheba, God spoke to Jacob in a night vision, saying in verse 3, I am God the God of your father, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. So that implies Jacob had some fear. Why would he be afraid to go down to Egypt? We've seen in Genesis on several occasions in the past that when Abraham and Isaac were experiencing famine and wanted to go down to Egypt, that was not a good thing. Typically going down to Egypt was seen as not trusting God, fleeing from God and His presence to go trust in a pagan nation and in their wealth and seeking provision from them rather than trusting God for His provision. Now, the promise that God gave to Abraham back in chapter 12, it had to do with the land of of Canaan. Descendants would be there in that land. They were to stay in that land and to trust God to provide for them. In chapter 12, Abraham, he left the land of Canaan when there was famine. He went down to Egypt. It was a disaster for his family. If you remember his wife, Sarah, taken by Pharaoh, leaving the land for Abraham was not trusting God. It was relying on the wealth of Egypt. In chapter 26, when Isaac was faced with famine, And looking to go down to Egypt, the Lord appeared to him in chapter 26 and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. So it required faith for Isaac to not go to Egypt, but rather to stay in the land of Canaan. But here, for Jacob, it would be the exact opposite. It would require faith to leave the land and to go down to Egypt. And we see here God clearly called him to do this. Now again, remember God's promises to Abraham involved descendants and land. We see in this chapter, he's got descendants. We see 70 descendants named. So we see God's faithfulness to his promise. They're there in the land, but now he's giving up the land and walking away. I think Moses, the narrator of Genesis, wanted it to be clear both to the original audience and to us, this was authorized by God. This was obedience to God. This was trusting 
God. This was no mistake. This was not a bad decision like Abraham made. This was God's plan to form his people. It's also interesting that, that God knew Jacob's fears, and then God assured Jacob with his word. Christian, God knows your fears too. He knows them better than you do. Sometimes we fear, we, we feel fearful or anxious, and we don't even know why. But God always knows. He knows what's going on in our mind and our heart. And just like he pushed Jacob to his word to find comfort and assurance, God assures every believer through the power and comfort of his word. And what that means, Christian, our responsibility is to run to the Bible. You know, could you view your time in the Bible this week as running to receive assurance, to find comfort in God? I think there is a duty we have to regularly be in the Word. Let's not mistake that just for a checklist, to check something off, to feel better about keeping a goal. Let's have a value, though, of understanding there there are treasures to be claimed in God's Word, treasures of comfort, treasures of assurance, treasures that will combat the fear and the anxiety and the selfishness that we so often struggle with. You see, fear, it it lies to us about the future. Fear, it it often imagines a future where God doesn't provide for us. And God's Word reminds us He's already provided for us. He's given us what we needed most, Jesus. For those who put their faith in Jesus, He's given you what you need most, His presence. He forgave your sins in Christ and got sin out of the way so that we could be united to the God who created us. You see, God's promises, they combat fear. May we ask God for help to regularly run to the Bible and find assurance. Well, in verse 3, God restates the promises that He earlier made to Abraham, where He promised to make them into a great nation. But there's a new detail for us to see here. Notice what's different in the middle of verse 3. For there I will make you into a great nation. Jacob's family would become a great nation in Egypt, not in the promised land of Canaan. Now, the promised land of Canaan still remained. God promised to bring them back to the land eventually, saying in verse 4, I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. The, The revelation here is that God was with Jacob. His trip to Egypt would not jeopardize the promises of God. God Himself would be with Him the whole time. I love that phrase there, I myself will go down with you. It'd be a wonderful thing if God said, I'll send angels to guard you and to be in your presence. But He didn't say, I'll send angels. He said, I myself will go down with you. It'd be wonderful if He just said, I will look down on you and I'll bless you. But He didn't say that. He said, I myself will go down with you. I'm there with you, in your midst, guiding you, guarding you. Almost the image of a a father holding the hand of his little child as they cross through a, a dangerous and busy intersection. I'll be with you. I'll make sure no harm comes your way. I'm going to hold your hand the whole way back home. See, that's the precious promise God was giving to His people there. He will go down with them. Now, the promise here, it's an ongoing promise of God's presence. He's saying, I will be with you in the present, and I will be with you in the future. So this promise of God's present, it wasn't only for Jacob as an individual. 
It was for all of his family. Here's how we know that. We read first in verse 4 that God promises presence on the journey to Egypt. That's a promise for the present. But we also read God's promise of his presence when he brings them up again. That means back to the land of Canaan. That's a promise for the future. Now, the problem is, and we read it in our scripture reading this morning in Acts chapter 7, and if you read ahead just a couple chapters in Genesis, we'll see Jacob's going to die in Egypt. I don't think this was just talking about bringing his body back to the promised land, which happened. I think this is talking about his descendants will eventually come back to the promised land. We see here this, this promise of, of God's presence to bring them up again is a promise for the future of Jacob's descendants for Israel. This wouldn't be a short trip to Egypt. The people of Israel would remain there for hundreds of years. I mean, this was prophesied all the way back in chapter 15, verse 13. If you remember, we went through the covenant to Abraham in chapter 15. God told Abraham there in verses 13 and 14, "'Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. This going down to Egypt to be saved would end up with them being enslaved in a foreign land for, for centuries. And I think that's why Moses wanted to include the details. Hey, this wasn't a mistake to go down to Egypt. God called them to Egypt. It's not like Jacob messed up and Pharaoh, a future Pharaoh, ended up enslaving them. No, this was God's plan the whole time. And he was going to be with them through suffering and through hardship. The promise given there in verse 4, it looked forward to the great salvation event of the Old Testament, the Exodus. God's promise to them in Egypt is not that they would avoid hardship, not that they would avoid affliction. He already told them to expect that, even if they hadn't made the connection yet to Genesis 15. His promise, I will always be with you, and I'll be faithful to bring you back. Brother and sister, there is no greater promise that God can give His people than the promise of His presence. The greatest gift that God can give is Himself. And that's what He gave us in Jesus. God Himself came down with us when Jesus, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, fully God, fully man, came down himself to earth. In the New Testament, in the Gospel of Matthew, we read of the glory of Jesus coming down to earth. That when God came down to earth in the form of little baby Jesus, God would be with us. In Matthew chapter 1, there's another Joseph. Joseph, the husband of Mary, Jesus' earthly father. This Joseph, he also had a visit at night and a dream at night. His dream came from the angel Gabriel, appearing there in a dream, delivering the good news of God with us. In Matthew 1, chapter, excuse me, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, we read, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means what? God with us. You see, for us and for our salvation, Jesus came down to earth. 
He laid his life down willingly to die on the cross as a payment for the sins of anyone who would turn and trust in him. He rose from the dead on the third day. And before he ascended into heaven, Jesus promised to always be with his people. He ascended into heaven that his spirit, the spirit of God, would come down and dwell inside anyone who would repent of their sin against God and put their faith in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins. And brother and sister in the Lord, if you're a Christian, what that means is that you've repented of your sin. You've put your faith in Jesus. And the comfort that you and I know this morning in Christ is that God is with us and God is for us. He has promised always to be present with us, giving us a precious promise in Matthew 28, verse 20, I am with you always. Brothers and sisters, may the Lord strengthen us to lay hold of this very simple promise. I'm with you always. Think about how many of our problems could be met with this assurance. I'm with you. Don't fear. Don't don't fear if you'll have enough material provision. Don't fear the threat of sin and temptation. I I am with you. I am the one who saved you. I'm with you, and I will sustain you. Let's consider the, the second scene of God's presence we see in verses 5 through 27. God's saving presence. God's saving presence, verses 5 through 27. So having received this authorization from God, assurance from God, we read in verse 5, then Jacob set out from Beersheba. Consider the order here. First he sought the Lord, then he set out. What a model that is for all who have their faith in God, that we we seek the Lord, we seek wisdom from His Word. His Word is our authority, and we listen to His Word and seek to obey His Word. Well, Christian, I wonder how often you seek wisdom from God in making decisions. Often you come and pray and ask God for wisdom. It's just a simple prayer. There's a lot of decisions we can't pray about for a week. Sometimes, like, you know, we'll ask someone, like, hey, can you, can you serve in children's ministry? You don't need to pray about that, by the way. Like, you've already prayed about that when you signed the church covenant. That prayer was prayed long ago, and it was answered, like, yes. Like, come and, and serve, right? So you don't need to pray about a week for that and, like, get back with someone about that kind of thing, right? There's plenty of decisions in life we don't have a week to pray for or a month to pray for. We have to pray in the moment and ask God for wisdom and help. Oftentimes, there's decisions we'll face in a day that we have no idea we're getting ready to face. And don't we see the value of regularly being in God's Word and prayer and being conformed to His will, knowing the Bible, so that when those decisions face us, we've already grown in wisdom and can apply it to those challenging situations. The the question I think we need to ask ourselves, and I think what we see here with Jacob, he was governed by the Word of God. He didn't want to move on to Egypt without authority from God and His Word. Well, Christian, are you increasingly governed by the Word of God? It's a great question that Don Whitney asks in one of the books I think we have downstairs, 10 questions to evaluate your life, 10 spiritual questions. Are you increasingly governed by the Word of God? Well, faith comes from hearing. Jacob heard the Word of God, and then Jacob set out in faith. Now, it's repeated numerous times in verses 5 through 7 that all his offspring, all of the promised ones, head out from the promised land. Not one left 
behind. At the end of verse 7, we read, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Total obedience, no one left behind, fully committed to following the Lord. And to provide an even greater level of detail about that reality, we find the placement of this genealogy here to show they all went. No one was left behind. Now, again, this is the third trip to Egypt. This trip would be different. It wasn't just the brothers, and it wasn't just like they were bringing dad, bringing Jacob back. Rather, all of the descendants were going. This was a rescue plan. It was an operation to save them from famine. There was no immediate plan to return because we know there were five years of famine left. This trip was relocating the whole family. In verses 9 through 18, we see a, a list of the sons of Leah and her maidservant Zilpah and their descendants. So, so 33 there with Leah, 16 listed there with Zilpah. In verses 19 through 25, a list of the sons of Rachel and her maidservant Bilhah and their descendants. Rachel, 14 listed, and Bilhah, 7. The, the list totals here in this chapter to 70 descendants named. Now, five were not on this journey. You can see in verse 12, Er and Onan had died, so they were not on the journey. In verse 20, we see that Joseph and his two sons, they were already in Egypt, so they weren't on that journey, which is why in verse 26, we read 66 persons were traveling while 70 total names listed. Now, that's a lot of math, but stick with me here. I think there's significance with the number 70. It's an important number. It's a number of completion. Back in chapter 10 of Genesis, we saw the table of nations. You may have remembered us going through that. You remember how many nations were mentioned back in Genesis chapter 10? Seventy. Seventy nations mentioned there. So the 70 there and the 70 that we see here in this chapter, they correspond. Back in chapter 10, the 70 nations represented all the sons of Adam, descendants of Adam. Here, The 70 sons, descendants, they represent the descendants of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. This number 70, it represents a full and complete number, representing a new humanity, a new people that God brought into the land of Egypt. Back in chapter 10, a table of nations. Here in chapter 46, a table of the nation, the nation of Israel that God was forming a new people that God brought into the land of Egypt to save from the famine and to bless with his presence. The family of Jacob going to be made into a mighty nation, a new humanity that would bless the earth. Now consider it had taken over 200 years to see these descendants form. Abraham waited a long time for a promised descendant. He was 100 years old when Isaac was born. Isaac was 60 when Jacob was born. Here was the beginning of the promise, over 200 years to form. And these descendants, they were a visible testimony that God keeps His promises. God had kept His promise and descendants, and they could leave the land seeing that, knowing God promised to bring us back to the land. We are going to follow Him by faith. You see, God always has given visible reminders of His faithfulness to His promise. I mentioned earlier how local churches, I think, are visible reminders of God's faithfulness to His promise. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus promised, I will build my church. 
we see visible fulfillment of that promise this morning. There's a lot of work to do in the gospel. There is a lot of work to do in church planting. But if you pause and consider, by God's grace, how much work has been done already, it is astounding. There are local churches on every inhabitable continent. Anyone who wants to tell you that Christianity is Western, they haven't thought too deeply about this. It's not Western. We we worship someone from the Middle East, Jesus Christ, who's risen from the dead, and it's certainly not American. The gospel, it transcends culture. Jesus Christ reigns above nations. It was always the plan that God had descendants for Abraham who would come from all nations. They would multiply and fill the earth. And we see visible fulfillment of that this morning just in the presence of this local church. You can look around and see visible evidence of God's faithfulness this morning. Every member of this church has the same testimony. We have different stories. We grew up in different places. There were different circumstances God had in bringing us to Himself and saving us. But we all have the same story. We were sinners, and by the grace of God, He saved us. And our faith is in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. We have the same testimony. And you can look around and say, God saved him, and God saved her, and God saved you, and God saved me. This is a visible reminder that God has done what he said he would do. He has fulfilled in Jesus Christ this plan to raise up a people for himself. For 86 years, this local church has been a visible testimony of God's promises. Now, hear me clearly. God doesn't promise every local church will last forever. That's not the promise. We are just uh, the, the recipients this morning of God's blessing for this church to still be here after 86 years. But the promise is that He will have a people here on earth in the name of Jesus Christ, the church, when Jesus returns. Well, several scholars I read this past week, they pointed out that this journey to Egypt, it has echoes of the flood story in it. When Noah's family, the people of God, were saved from God's wrath and judgment in the flood. And these scholars, they pointed to a phrase used twice here in this chapter, first in verse 8 of the people coming into Egypt, and then again in verse 27, coming into Egypt. Back in chapter 6, the story of the flood, in verses 18 through 20, there's a phrase there with the word into. Into the ark is repeated twice. Into the ark, into the ark, into Egypt, into Egypt. They're saying this is an echo back to the story of the flood. In other words, what they're pointing to is that God's people were saved back in chapter 6 when they went into the ark, and here in chapter 46, God's people are saved when they went into Egypt, almost like a type of ark. In other words, it was a powerful moment of deliverance, of rescue, of salvation, a moment of God's saving presence, delivering and rescuing his people. Let's consider the third scene, final scene, verses 28 through 34, God's presence in this life and in the next. God's presence in this life and in the next. For 22 years, Jacob thought that his son Joseph was dead. And now finally, he gets to see Joseph and be reunited with him. And in verse 29, we read of this reunion we've been on the edge of our seat waiting for. We read, Joseph presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die, since I have seen your face 
and know that you are still alive. Friends, there are few things more painful in life than losing one of your children. I don't know that from personal experience, but I know that from pastoral ministry over the years. I know that from some of your stories. I know that from friendships, friends who've lost one of their children, even if that was an adult child. A child going before you in death is a painful matter. Pain runs deep. It's long-lasting. Imagine the pain Jacob carried for over 22 years, thinking Joseph was dead. When he got the news, he was alive and believed it. It was like his soul was revived, like he came back from the dead. He's able to hold him and embrace him and weep together there, not, not just for a moment, for a good while. He was finally at peace. Decades of sorrow, years of mourning turned into a moment of rejoicing that I'm sure felt surreal to him in the moment. And so when he states he's ready to die, this isn't being said in a sorrowful way, but rather in a manner of hope and fulfillment. He received what he had hoped for. He wanted to see Joseph again. He thought he'd see him again when he went down to Sheol. But here he was, lo and behold, God's plan, His providence the whole time to save the family and bring them to Egypt and to use Joseph. He can die in the presence of his beloved son. He could die assured of the promises of God for his family. God's promises would certainly outlast his life. These were promises he could hold on to as he faced death. God was with him in this life and would be fully and forevermore with him in the next life meaning with God in heaven. Brother and sister, and really anyone here this morning, I would ask you this question. Any, whether you're a Christian or not, I want to ask you this question. What promises do you cling to as you approach death? Unless Jesus returns first, we all will die. I hope I'm alive when Jesus returns. You've heard me say that a number of times. I really do. I hope that. I pray that. I think you should pray that. It would be a wonderful moment if you're in Christ to be alive when He returns. It will be a terrible moment if you're alive and you haven't put your faith in Christ. You haven't had your sins forgiven when Christ returns. But if Christ doesn't return first, each of us one day will, will die. Today, we are one day closer to our death than we were yesterday. And the same will be true tomorrow. And maybe some of you in this room think about that because you're older in age, and maybe there's a lot of us who don't because we're younger. Things are going well. Health is fine. That day, just as sure as we were born, we will die. The question is, what promises will you cling to as you face death? This life is not all that there is. We will live forever, either enjoying God's presence forever in heaven or away from the presence of the Lord forever in hell, in conscious, eternal torment. That is an important moment to consider. 
What, what promises are you clinging to as you face death? We plan for life. We plan for retirement. We plan for all sorts of things. The Bible teaches us to, that wisdom in Psalm 90 is to number our days, to plan for our death in other words. For the believer, that, that's not a morbid thought. We don't look forward to death itself, but we look forward to what happens after death because of the victory of Jesus Christ. His victory over death and dying on the cross and rising from the grave, we have hope and assurance. Well, I wonder, will you die having assurance? I asked someone recently back, what do you, what do you think happens after you die? It was a neighbor, and he just said, well, I don't, I don't know. I guess I'll find out when it happens. I told him he didn't have to live like that. As a Christian, I have assurance. I have good reason. Not just closing my eyes, hoping something good happens. I have good reason to hope, a foundation in Jesus. He's the one that got up from the dead. I believe what Jesus said. I believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And as he was raised, so I too will be raised by God's grace through faith. But I wonder what promise you're clinging to this morning. Will you die having assurance? We need to know that God's promises are for this life and for the next. Jacob died having assurance of God's promise and His presence in this life and His presence in the next, and so can you. The only way to receive the promises of God is to repent of your sin and to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you haven't done that yet, we would love to talk to you more this morning about what that would look like to put your faith in Jesus today, to have assurance in this life and the next bound in Jesus. Talk to someone who brought you this morning, a family member, a friend, our pastors, we were at the doors afterward, talked to one of us. We'd love to talk to you more about what it would look like to trust in Christ. And for those who are in Christ, who put your faith in Jesus Christ, we find comfort that we, can ha we have no fear in death. As we face our certain death, we cling to the promises of God in Jesus. While Joseph reuniting with his father was an important moment, there were urgent matters that still needed to be attended to. They were in the land of Egypt, but they needed some permission from Pharaoh, his final approval to remain there in the land. They were foreigners, strangers in that land. We see in verses 31 through 34, there's a conversation between Joseph and his brothers where Joseph comes up with a plan with how the brothers are to address Pharaoh. We, we see that verse 34, the end of the chapter, we see culturally the Egyptians had a low regard, to say the least, for shepherds. Verse 34, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Joseph came up with a plan. He wanted Pharaoh to know that his family, they're shepherds. He wanted Pharaoh to see they had their own livestock with them. That it would be clear they wouldn't be a burden to Egypt. They had their own source of, of, of food, and they needed him to provide a place for them, for their flock to have pasture. Likely, that would put them in a shrewd plan far away from the Egyptians because of their disdain for shepherds and a shrewd plan to kind of have their own little piece of the land of Egypt, their own stretch of the land in Goshen, which was a, a fertile area, one of the best pieces of land in Egypt. What Joseph was doing was seeking to establish his family in Egypt. This chapter it closes with the plan. Lord willing, next week we'll see this plan was successful. It works. But we see that Joseph... He went before them, and he prepared a place for them, Goshen, a place where the family would be re reunited and live together. Jacob 
and all 12 of his sons together. But even greater than this family reunion is the plan that God had for this family in Egypt. His plan to multiply the people of Israel, to make them into a great nation in the land of Egypt at the time that Egypt was the most powerful and wealthy nation on earth. That was the stage God chose to show His power. That was the stage God showed to form His people and eventually to raise them up out of Egypt by His powerful hand in parting the Red Sea and delivering them through the very narrator of the story, Moses. See, throughout the story of Joseph, this big picture, it keeps getting repeated. God is faithful to His promises. Somebody asked me a few weeks back, you know, how do you preach the story of Joseph and just not be repetitive? I said, I don't know, maybe maybe that's the point. Maybe you and I need to hear God is faithful to His promises. How quick are we to forget that, to not believe it? How often do we need to be stirred up By way of reminder, God is faithful to His promises. Throughout the story of the life of Joseph, we see God's faithfulness. And God's promise of comfort, of His faithfulness to Jacob and His descendants, I myself will come down with you. I myself will bring you up again. Brother and sister in the Lord, God's made that same promise to us. One of the greatest promises we can cling to, God Himself is, is with us. Matthew 28, 20, I said it earlier, I am with you always. How much of a difference, Christian, would it make in your life this week if you repeated that promise more and more to yourself in prayer? More and more to yourself in those moments of fear or struggling with it. God is with us in Christ Always. How would this knowledge that God's with you affect your experience of fear or loneliness? In Christ, God Himself has come down with us. What a glorious testimony we have. But in Christ, He also will bring us safely home. He told Jacob, I myself will bring you back again. And He's told Christians, He will bring us home to heaven. John chapter 14, I leave you with a precious promise of Jesus. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. For those who trust in Jesus, our greatest blessing, the greatest comfort we can know is that God is with us in Christ. And may we build our hope today that He's coming again and He will take us with Him, that we find journey on this side of heaven, that God Himself is with us and that He Himself will bring us home to be with Him forever. Let's pray. Father, we are so quick to forget, we confess. We are so quick to be distracted. We are far too often find ourselves trusting in ourselves, trusting in our own material resources, our own physical strength, our own intellectual knowledge and wisdom. And Lord, we ask that you would turn us away from trusting in those things, 
We pray you'd refresh our minds and hearts and renew our trust in you this morning as your people, that we would trust your precious promises, that we would rest in Christ and his finished work on the cross, that we would rest in how much you've loved us in Christ, how much you've done for us, and we would rest in the hope that we have that Christ has gone to prepare a place for us and that he himself will lead us safely home to be with you. We pray for comfort and confidence found in your promises. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.